Hello, world singers. My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere, Cosmere Conversations. Conversations. Welcome back, everyone. It is fantastic to have fans. No, it's fantastic that you're here. It's fantastic that we have the Cosmere. We have been pondering, thinking, how are we going to get through this Cosmere drought? Yeah, man, we are already so deep into this drought and we still have so far to go. It's kind of depressing. And yet we have you, we have each other, and we have Cosmere knowledge that needs to be uncovered. True. We are fortunate in that the Cosmere is big. And we're going to explore that bigness today. One of the big questions, the big question, you might say, that all beings have across both fictional and real non-fictional worlds. We're going to be looking at religion today. We have looked at mythologies on specific planets in the past, but we haven't really done a deep dive into like religion specifically. So we gonna do that now. Yeah, obviously there is a kind of weird intersection and this will be one of the main things that we talk about today between religion and culture and how so many cultures are defined by their religion or their religious beliefs inform so much of what their cultures become yeah it was interesting doing the research for the these next episodes and trying to draw that line in between like well what's culture and what's religion and seeing how like on some planets that line is super blurry and like everything is enmeshed together you can't really separate the religion from the culture and then on some planets like there are pretty solid lines in between like what's just popular culture and then what is like a really specific and self-contained religion. It is probably very similar as it is on our planet where the more mainstream or the more popular a religion is, then the more wound up it is in just the general culture and then the religions that are practiced by a smaller number or a minority of people uh, those are the ones that feel really unique and and that is what is so interesting is religious belief is at the cornerstone or the foundation of many societies and cultures and so it's always interesting how authors introduce it or play with it? Do they touch it at all? Do they maybe um, borrow too much from earthly religions when they're creating a fictional religion? It's very complex because it's the, the foundation stone and everything comes from that. Yeah, that's a really good point and something that I find really interesting about Brandon Sanderson's work is that knowing that he's Mormon and like he's been pretty open about that fact. I think it's really interesting to read his books and not only has he written 
so many different religions. Um, but I think he does a really good job of like being super creative with them. And they certainly do not feel like they are, uh, you know, just copies of a Mormon or a Christian religion, which I think is easy to do when you have like grown up and been immersed in a specific religion. It can sometimes be difficult to like imagine what other religions might be like. Um, and I think he does that extremely well. It comes back to one of the inspirations for this podcast, which may end up becoming a series of podcasts, since there's a bunch of religions, as Brooke pointed out, um, is that fans ask Brandon quite often about his own religion and how his religious beliefs impact his writing. Um, and so we found a word of Brandon that was about this specifically. We're going to share it now, and then we'll go into discussions about different religions on different planets. So, Brooke, could you play the questioner, and I'll play Brandon in this circumstance. Stage play beginning now. Questioner says, how do you feel your identity and upbringing as a Mormon has affected your work? Elantris, for instance, centers around a magic system that has essentially been broken because something in the world has changed, a quote-unquote new revelation, if you will. And then Mistborn has a set of holy writings that have been altered by an evil force. These things seem decidedly Mormon to me, or at least really informed from a Mormon perspective. Brandon's answer will be abbreviated because he talks a lot. So he says, I don't set out to put anything specifically Mormon into my books, but who I am definitely influences what I write and how I write. My goal in storytelling is first and foremost to be true to the characters, their passions, beliefs, and goals, no matter what those are. I'm not trying to make a point consciously ever in my writing, though I do think that good stories should raise questions and make readers think. Who I am as a person heavily influences what I write, and I draw from everything I can find, whether it be LDS, Latter-day Saint, Buddhist, Islamic, or atheism. It's all jumbled up there in that head of mine and comes out in different characters who are seeking different things. In other words, I'm not trying to set out to be like C.S. Lewis and write parables of belief. I'm trying more what Tolkien did, not to compare myself to that master, in that I tell stories and settings first and let theme and meaning take care of itself. End quote. I really like that perspective from a person who's deeply religious himself, but then tries to draw from several different sources. I think this probably has, you know, a lot to say about Brandon individually, but from a a reader's perspective, it really helps that it doesn't feel just like a copy and paste of his religion, but instead yeah. a blending of things. Yeah. And like you said, that's kind of an individual um, trait that's really beneficial for a writer. I think it indicates um, a creative mind, right? That he's kind of able to think outside of the box and put himself in other people's shoes, in this case, his character's shoes, to like imagine different sets of beliefs and different values for different people. What I really love about the different religions throughout the Cosmere is the connections and the similarities that hint at the greater Cosmere, even though it's so often through one character's perspective 
or one character's conversation with another character on a very micro level, but then that micro level is connected to the macro. And we're going to try to jump back and forth between those perspectives today, but we will be avoiding most of the big Cosmerian aspects of like the shards and yeah because as far as we know at least at this point that's not really a religion on any planet that would fall under our category of mythology which we've already talked about and maybe later if we find out more about like adenalsium and any potential adenalsium religions we would talk about that but for today we are going to be zooming in a little bit more on each planet and looking at the specific religions that exist there Starting with Scatriel, which I was just thinking of as you were talking about how religions connect across the Cosmere, because I think this is one of the biggest connections that we've seen so far. Absolutely. Um, But like you were saying, there are religions that we only get maybe one sentence or two about when we hear Sazed um, talking about them and pitching different religions to different members of the crew, such as Trelegism, which we only get one sentence about and then that comes back later and might be super important yeah trilogism is unique because we are considering it the pre-ascension more ancient religion that was practiced on scadriel this is the one as you mentioned that zazed explains to people very shortly zazed says quote there had been a people known as Nelazan. They had worshipped the stars, had called them the thousand eyes of their god, Trell, watching them. End quote. He later goes on to explain that Trell has an opposite god, or like a brother god, called Nalt. And while Trell was represented by the stars, the thousand eyes of their god looking down, and that's what the people worshipped was the night sky— Nalt represented daytime, and he didn't have a thousand eyes, but he had the one big eye of the sun that blocked out all the stars. And this is an ancient religion that even Zays said the people who practice it were kind of like, you know, backwards or they weren't developed. They didn't have a big civilization. It was kind of a small religion. But then as we will look at and continually return to throughout our conversations, Trellagism or Trellism and who Trell is and what Trell is becomes a huge significant aspect of the questions of the greater Cosmere. I think another interesting thing to note here is that the followers of Trellagism believed in discovering the truth for themselves. So they didn't have a lot of um, organized religion per se, but their adherents were encouraged to like do their own praying and discover the truth of trilogism for themselves. So it was a very independent religion, one might say autonomous. Yes, exactly. And we have it as a very brief mention in the first book or the first era of Mistborn, and then it becomes a focal point and a center point of the second era. But another of those pre-ascension religions that is mentioned by Zazed uh, and 
developed upon throughout the original Mistborn series is Larstaism. And this is one I found so interesting and important because it was actually the religion and the belief system that was chosen by Mare, Kelsier's wife. And cutie, Vin and Ellen are married in a Larstaist ceremony. Yeah, it's the bonding principle that Zay's uh, gives him a quote from. He he says that there's no known form of divorce. So if you choose this person, you need to... It's like a permanent bond. <laughs> yeah, and obviously this is shortly before the final battle and ascension and the end of their lives. So they go all in, ride mm-hmm. or die. <laughs> I guess ride and die. <laughs> rude (laughs) i mean it's what happened it was okay because they won as we see in that wedding ceremony which is literally just like vin do you love ellen yes ellen do you love vin yes okay cool we're done (laughs) um simplicity is the center of the larsta religion and it's focused on just kind of simple appreciation of nature seeking the divine in art and creation and sort of like appreciating what we have right here, both human made and natural made, rather than like being very cerebral and trying to think of like questions about the afterlife and like the meaning of life. It's more of just like, hey, you're here now. So like, just enjoy it. Yeah, this was one of the religions that Zazed researched and spent the most time exploring uh obviously choosing it for that big moment between vin and ellen but mayor and kelsier he definitely talked to them about this religion as well in his own low point his own uh, point of disbelief he tries to fall back and he's like well at least i got larstaism but it fails him in, in that moment and then he obviously has his redemption arc as well but it's a focal point that he likes this simplicity. He likes these, or he finds something attractive about these religions that have a little bit less structure or hierarchy. The people that he's working with, like Kelsier, um, obviously don't have a huge regard for hierarchies and like authoritative religions. So the ones he explains are often the opposite very interested in the natural world or very simple structures, even trilogism, find things out for yourself. You know, it's the same basic concept of we don't need other people. Our spirituality can be manifest within and manifest in the natural world. And I find that is a similar theme throughout many of the religions that Zays describes used to exist before the final empire. Something that I think is interesting and ties in with what we were talking about earlier is that Scadriel is one of those planets that seems to have very well-defined religions. And I think that's because like during the final empire, there basically isn't religion because there's just the Lord well, yeah, Ruler they're... who like everyone is supposed to worship or whatever. But like for the most part, let's be honest, people are atheists. Um, there's not really any kind of organized or structured religion. There's basically Yeah, just nothing. around the obligators and the Lord Ruler. 
Yeah, but, like, there's not even any mention of, like, ceremonies happening, you know, like... Yeah, they don't have, sure, like, there's Lord Ruler pictures in their house, like, with little shrines or yeah, anything. Like, yeah, That doesn't happen that we know of. <laughs> so there's not really anything there. And then, as we see post-Ascension, you start getting the development of these religions. And I think that sort of environment is what causes these religions to be a little bit more self-contained, well-defined. They don't bleed into the general culture as much as we'll see on other planets. But it will be interesting to see if, for example, in the future, as these religions become more and more steeped into the culture, if that starts happening and if they start changing culture or like how those things start to mesh together more. Yeah, I think that that concept that I started and mentioned earlier about if you are the majority, like during the final empire, the Lord ruler's beliefs, what he wanted was the the cultural and religious belief of everyone. And so when you're in a minority, it's easier to define yourself um, in opposition to that which already exists, the status quo. And so they kind of become more well-defined because the larger culture is also so well-defined, just believe in the Lord Ruler. I find the post-Ascension, or basically Mistborn Era 2 and onwards, to be very, very interesting in the ways that religion still exists and has incorporated the events that we see in Mistborn Era 1. That is one of my favorite things, seeing how the events that we witness in era one become mythology and how they get like distorted or like interpreted as time goes on. So fascinating. I mean, the whole first book is really, there's a confusion point thinking that, you know, like an offshoot religion that believes the Lord ruler has returned, but it's not actually the Lord ruler. Uh, it's Kelsier. And the whole Bands of Morning arc is about these different religions, basically, having a struggle for power. And interesting how we see survivorism begin again in era one, and then to come back in era two and see how it's developed and changed. Yes. Super interesting. Well, because we also have the Mistborn secret history knowledge. Let's start with survivorism because survivorism is the belief in... It's kind of the first religion Kelsier. post-Lord Ruler. Yeah, you could imagine that it's like he was... Kelsier was a rebel and a symbol of resistance against the lord ruler and his religion or the religion surrounding him kind of became the first thing that a lot of people latched onto. as we know it's not the only thing i would say that survivorism is the closest thing we see in the cosmere to christianity like really yeah 100 one of my favorite quotes about survivorism i forget who says it but someone <laughs> remarks how weird it is that the symbol of survivorism is the thing that killed the person yeah, they the worship. Spear and um, the crucifix being the yeah, two things. Like, yeah. But if you think about like Jesus's presence within the Roman Empire, right? Like he was very much a 
uh, rebel yeah. against the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire inciting, is yeah, the Lord Ruler's exactly. Empire. Exactly. Yeah. And so Kelsier totally fits that sort of rebellious, uh, you know, populist sort of figure who then dies violently at the hand of the government mm-hmm. in full view of the all people. of the people. Yeah. yeah. And then the religion becomes a belief that Kelsier was both a real man, but also something else. Right. That he would go on even after his death. Yes. And so what I think is fascinating is that survivorism and most of these um, post-ascension religions that we'll talk about are being pushed along by different entities it's not a uh, a religion that is passive or has passive aspects it's very much that kelsier still exists as a cognitive shadow as whatever we want to define him as well that's where it gets really interesting He's, right because then you're like i mean they're kind of right yeah exactly that's what that's what i'm saying in, in an active sense like we could either say okay religions are all fake or all not based on reality. Right. Um, and if you believe in X thing, that's fine, but it doesn't mean that that thing is actually happening. But with these post-ascension religions, no, you, I mean, if you can actually be visited by Kelsier, he well, shows up to people and is like, yeah, in bad times, well. and is like, survive. I need you to keep going, you know, whatever. It gives him tiny inspiration. Normally for his own ends i mean only the one time that we know about right with spook no i think that at the end of alloy of law he shows up in like a a hut or someone's home um they're dying and things aren't going well and he just has his exclamation point when he was just like survive and that's like the hint that oh this is not the lord ruler this is kelsier um at the end of that book so i assume he was showing up here and there as a cognitive shadow partially to keep his power around partially to keep people worshiping but it's just so interesting because at the same time kelsier gets some type of boost as a cognitive shadow the more people who are survivorists right because they're like thinking about him and like giving him power in the cognitive realm in the cognitive realm yeah it's like he becomes more of a tangible thing the more people believe in the survivor. And if he just had sat and chilled or maybe never escaped uh, the well of ascension, then he would probably be less significant and less um, powerful in that cognitive realm. But he's actively engaging with the world that we see. And so the belief is, as you said, kind of accurate or it's like it's a real thing. I think I mean, this is a specific example of that. But I think that we see that quite a bit throughout the Cosmere, though, which is, I think, the cool thing. It's why we can yeah, make exactly an episode about this yeah. is that in almost every religion that we've been able to delve into at least mildly significantly throughout the Cosmere, we are able to see at least a seed of truth yes. in it and like where this is coming from. And a lot of that truth comes back to the shard on an individual planet. Yeah. Um, but I think that is one of the most interesting things and probably the thing that is the most part of his religion that he writes into the Cosmere is that 
there's a reason for religion. Uh, I mean, he obviously believes that personally in all of the different religions that we see. But then, yeah, to be able to show that in every religion. Exactly. There's a reason for it. Yeah. And so that... That they are all, at least in part, based on something real Mm -hmm. that is there and that there's not a setup of like there's one true religion and then a bunch of religions that are not based on anything real yeah i think that that is the best part about the epicness of sanderson is it doesn't feel like oh well who's actually correct are the boys and everybody else (laughs) is just having their silly little games but no, no when you get a line about trilogism pay attention because that is remarking on something that is actually real and there's something about those thousand eyes staring through and there's something about Nalt that is the one eye you could think of it maybe just in the most cosmerian sense about like trilogism is blocked from scadrial because autonomy can't get into that area so the people who are worshiping other stars they're worshiping the stars that are farther away, one of which is Taldane and the actual star of autonomy. But, you know, the and shards like the are kind of blocking out. the state of Scadrial right now where Harmony is holding back yes. autonomy. So, right? okay, so yeah, that, kind of like same that's thing. That's how Trellism, the pre-Ascension religion, becomes Trellism, uh, <laughs> which is the post-Ascension religion slash belief system Um, that many of the people in the set are part of. Um, This includes Miles Hundred's lives, uh, who his last words, Brooke, do you want to play out Miles' last words? Sure, so dramatic. Yeah, exactly. He says, You are fools. One day, the men of gold and red, bearers of the final medal, will come to you, and you will be ruled by them. Worship. Worship Trell and wait. And then finally that dude dies. And then he dies. Thank goodness. <laughs> thank Trell. <laughs> well, don't thank Trell. <laughs> but thank someone. Uh, thank Adenalsium. <laughs> we have so much of the Era 2 is this clash between believers in Trell, which is kind of believers in autonomy, including Palm... Or any of the faceless immortals that are corrupted, normally shown by having red eyes or red-tinted eyes. Those are like agents of Trell. Not necessarily believers. I think that there is at least some aspect, remember, with the faceless immortals that they can be controlled by shard powers. So Mm. agents, I don't all mean witting agents, though Palm, I think, was. Um, There's always kind of a question of like, how much autonomy do these people actually have when they're dealing with autonomy? <laughs> That's actually a really interesting point. I don't know because we haven't seen enough variation in, but I, I could definitely yeah. imagine that Trell is certainly convincing some people, Trell meaning autonomy, yeah. is certainly convincing some people on Skadriel to follow him, but a faceless immortal is like a big question mark to me. Just because they can be controlled. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I think that's like such a good point that I hadn't thought of that there's this weird discontinuity in there. If like autonomy is taking over them through hemallergy and I'm pretty sure Palm 
has quotes about like i need to be my own person i need to well, be autonomous whatever. yes she definitely does but and then like is not really autonomous well one of her spikes is corrupted it's like a metal with red by autonomy right yes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. so he is certainly i think for palm and maybe for other faceless immortals actively um controlling rather than they are true believers in the religion yeah something else in here though that's interesting is pathianism oh, pathianism obviously which is faith. almost more similar to the pre-ascension trellogism yeah, a little than bit trellism yeah. because it's very focused on like each person having their own connection with god harmony and like there's not really any structure to it it's very much just like put your earring in pray by yourself like find your own meaning and connection it really is to me the perfect religion for zazed as we talked about he was normally referencing these kind of more naturalistic or ancient religions that were not having a big hierarchy, not having a lot of organization, very simplistic. Well, and in life, he was a servant. Yes. Essentially, you know, he was there to serve others. He served the group of world bringers that he was a part of. He helped and served Kelsier and the crew versus Kelsier, right? Who kind of always Center had, yeah, who always had a desire to be worshipped. Um, and so we see that difference between the Pathians who again are like super unstructured and chill versus the survivorists who we see in era two have become like something like our Catholic church, very uh, steeped in ceremony and yeah. tradition. And the priests are now, you know, bedecked in specific clothing items. I love the kind of general divergence that we see between Pathianism and survivorism it gives a lot of insight into both of the characters that they are based on as you mentioned but it also allows us to have insight into characters that profess to believe we know that wax is a pathian and one who um has one of the most significant visions of godlike power or a being a splinter almost um when he is interacting with zazed harmony um in like a pathian prayer session he literally puts in the uh earring and then has a conversation with god and it's pretty epic in that moment let's jump over to rishar probably the world that has the next most religions or cultural variations that we know of because, yeah, because of Rashar the, is huge it's gigantic uh both physically as the planet itself and also in the cosmere and opposite to Skadril, Rashar is very enmeshed between religion and culture like you really can't separate the two things um for the most part, I guess I'm talking about Voronism, since we don't have a ton of info about other religions on Rashar. Um, and I think we've talked about Voronism a little bit before, but we've talked about it a little bit more macro, um, yeah. encompassing like culture and mythology into all of that. Today, we're going to talk really specifically like 
just about the religious part of Voronism. Yeah, and kind of stay away a little bit from the history of... Yeah, and history. Yeah. It's just like literally everything in this whole world is all tied up in this little bowl of Voronism. For us, episode, I think, six and seven had these conversations about history, mythology, religion on Rishar. If you're interested, go check those ones out. But with Voronism, the main religion, the main culture of many of the characters that we follow, um, it's prevalent in most of Alethkar, Yakavad, Karbranth, New Natanan, Thalina, and all of these are known as the Voren kingdoms. So literally united around a religious and cultural belief. Yeah. Not to try to draw a parallel between survivorism and uh, Catholicism and now Voronism. However, Catholicism and Voronism do have some similarities in the big picture in that um, they are very much tied into the culture, history, governments, organizations um, of the people for a very long time. So like the Holy Roman Empire was a thing uh, that is comparable to some of the aspects that we see on Rashar. We're trying to look at just the religious beliefs, though, again. So sort of the key tenets of Voronism, people believe in the Almighty, who is known to be the force of good and the creator of mankind. Um, he's He is male, and he is typically represented in religious arts as a divine prism with 10 facets um, representing the 10 heralds. Now, the heralds are emissaries of the Almighty. If we're going to carry it over into earthly religions, maybe uh, like some of the angels, the archangels uh, that serve God and help out on his behalf. We know that the heralds are split. Half are male and half are female. And they stay pretty strict in those um, roles. There's not a lot of yeah. uh, unlike, role reversal. Yeah, unlike other religions on Earth here where yeah. like genders can kind of change over time or other religions we see in the Cosmere where um, a certain archetype may be represented by a man or a woman, these are quite fixed. And that may be because, as we know, they were originally humans. Although this is not part of the Voren religion. This is just us commenting. Yeah. <laughs> So we have these kind of emissaries of the Almighty. They each have a sort of section of human life that they rule over, similar to like a Greek mythology, Roman mythology kind of thing, where there's, you know, the Herald of Luck is Ishi, and the Herald of Justice is Nalan. What makes the Heralds such a significant player is their direct protection of interaction with the dawn cities we believe are like partially made by or with the assistance of the heralds so they are kind of the more active 
interactors on Rashar, where we can literally now in the modern books uh, see the different heralds in basically multiple different aspects in their weakened state. But we know that they are still constantly interacting with the people of Rashar and have been basically all this time. And then in sort of a practical way, in the practice of Voranism, uh, all Voran people are expected to choose a calling, which is like should be in line with your best talent in life, really. Like you choose something that you're good at and then you decide that that's going to be your calling, that like that's the thing you're going to work on and practice at and like become as good at that thing as you can to bring glory to God, basically. And the calling is very important because there is the belief that people are basically like practicing or working to become good at a calling so that they can help in the fight to regain the tranquiline halls, which kind of like heaven but needs to be battled over. Like they yeah, need to yeah, get back. Yeah, it's like your the... your paradise land, basically. Yeah. And so a calling will actually determine what you are going to do helping in the battle. So if you're a farmer uh, and your calling is to become like the great greatest farmer and you do that, you become the very best farmer. You're going to lead all the farmers in the battle. Uh, for the Tranquiline Halls in the afterlife. When this concept is first introduced, it's introduced from the nobles' perspective, like Adolin and Shallan. Um, and so it sounds great. You're like, oh, cool, yeah, like you become a really good fighter in life, and then when you die, you fight for God. Cool. And then I think it's an Oathbringer. Someone remarks like, actually, this is kind of crappy because if you are a garbage man in life, And then you also have to be a garbage man for eternity in your afterlife. Like, who wants that? Nobody wants that. This is just like a stupid excuse to make people like happy with what they have and like work really hard. Yeah. And that is where the tie in to culture and history and organization. Sorry, I told you these are blurry lines. They're very blurry. (laughs) But like this is kind of why it's so hard is like. Is your calling to benefit God in the fight for the tranquiline halls or is your calling to make sure that society works? Yeah, totally. And that line is very difficult. I mean, some would be very harsh and just be like, no, your calling's complete. All your religion is fake. And the only thing is people who want control and want to control society on such a scale that they need to make up something, some reason to have garbage men and farmers and Everything that is not great, you know, that's the concept of religion being the opiate of the masses, which has been said by many people uh, here on Earth, but Karl Marx definitely said it at one point. And that is such a difficult line to play with. Um, And it's such a fun one to see played with by Brandon on Rashar. I think that's where he does it best. Because again, here we see like there is a seed of truth in this like there is a cosmic battle that is happening the heralds are real um so and so is the almighty i mean the almighty is honor right yeah so all of these things are based in the reality that we understand 
but then we also get to see how the people of Rashar interpret those different yeah, things. Yeah, and like how it becomes corrupted because even or particularly on Rashar, we know that they have um, a history of the religious bodies, the ardents, like taking over the government. And then they had to be overthrown, which is why the ardents are now slaves, essentially. They like can't own any property. They have to serve the people. This is all because at one point they tried to take over everything. To continue on the more micro scale... People have their callings. If you're really good at your calling, you help out in the fight for the Tranquiline Halls. But if you are not the greatest and you would not be that helpful in the fight, uh, then Vorans believe that you get stuck in a limbo-like state where you have an eternity of dreamless sleep, which I guess is a religion. It sounds to me just like, you know, like extreme atheism. Like when we die, the lights just go out. And they call it a dreamless sleep. But like, it's like the Christian concept of purgatory where your quote unquote punishment is just that you're nothingness. removed from the presence of God. Yeah. And so because you don't have the presence of God, you're like kind of punished, but you're not being actively punished like you would be if you were in hell. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, purgatory is definitely a good explanation of it. It seems like that would be you know the vast majority of people because like there's only one best farmer or <laughs> there's only you know so many fighters that you need uh but it seems like a bunch of people would just end up in dreamless sleep state which you know i guess it's not people. the worst it's not the worst <laughs> definitely worse things can be imagined but it, it doesn't give a lot to live for of just like as soon as you realize that i would have an existential crisis on rishar i would just be like well i'm not going to be the best farmer i'm just <laughs> trying to live out here off of plants that disappear into the ground like we're barely making it by i'm just going for a dreamless sleep <laughs> <laughs> so like you were saying with <laughs> the calling they also choose a glory to pursue, which is like an aspect of the Almighty that they are trying to emulate in life. And, you know, ideally your calling and your glory go together. So if you choose the calling of a warrior, you would choose a glory of like determination or bravery or something like that. And it is of note when people pick callings and glories that are either opposing or that don't seem to go together that falls into this realm of how does your religion impact your cultural beliefs and the society structure uh, yeah it's interesting because we see a few different circumstances under which these callings and glories are like used by other people within the culture to define people i'm thinking specifically of shallan and mm. dalinar shallan's calling and glory don't really fit her at all because she wasn't able to truthfully choose the things that she wanted to she had to please her father yeah i mean then you could ask how many people are ever actually given the full ability to right. choose their i mean it seems like adolin fits very well yeah adolin his... is lucky in that he is like well suited to the things that he is quote unquote supposed to do both culturally and religiously but you could make the argument that being 
the first eldest son of the Blackthorn, he was always going to choose. Like, he didn't have any oh. real choice. Yeah. Like, totally. You know, we can say he fits very well, but in the same time, he was molded to fit those things very well. Well, and even like we see that, right? When we get these glimpses in Oathbringer of his childhood, how like he in personality was more like his mom, like he was very yeah. loving and emotional. And like you could imagine he may have chosen. A more, a more peaceful calling, you know, um, yeah, but, but because of his father, he chose fighting and dueling. Um, and, you know, again, fortunately for Adolin, because he's a lucky dude. Um, that sexy hair. It like worked out for him. Yeah. What I find interesting is how this even impacts the language and the names that people have. Uh, I mean, we... Oh. Yeah, I mean, have, you know how I love language. Yeah. I love this about Rashar. So it, it makes a lot of sense because if you look at, you know, the top most used or most popular names over the past 500 years, that's going to have a lot, yeah, a, it's a lot. lot of Bible names um, in European areas or people like the United States that have a descendants of the European religions, like a lot of Johns. A lot of Sarahs. Like, <laughs> it's like not very confusing. And in other cultures and in other societies, there is a link back to their foundation stories, their mythologies, their beliefs. Um, in ancient Greece, you had a lot of people who were named after the different Greek gods. And it's just like that's always kind of the trend. On Rashar, you have this belief in symmetry. And how many people's names are close to symmetrical. And yeah, this concept is so cool because you'll see like the Silver Kingdoms, I think they're called. Their names are all perfectly symmetrical, like Urethiru. They are palindromes and the Heralds as well. We don't really know if they originally had symmetrical names i think it's more likely that when voranism started worshiping them they kind of altered their names slightly to make them symmetrical so like ishi shalash right are all symmetrical names however among the lay people the non-heralds naming your child something perfectly symmetrical is like a Tower of Babel, kind of. You're like trying to get too close to God, and it's like, mm, you're not quite that good. You can't be perfectly symmetrical, which is where we end up with names like Shalon, which or is Kaladin. almost symmetrical. It's yeah. like towing the line a little bit, but it's not quite there. You're like, I'm close to God, but not quite there. And I think that's such an interesting way to incorporate religious beliefs into your story in a very natural way it's one of the things that gives so much depth because every character's name whenever they're mentioned you can instantly know something about them kaladin is given a name that makes him feel like an outcast because it is oh it's like too fancy it's an it's a too noble you know um and it because they're playing with his mother and father we're playing this idea that he's close to god but not quite god so it's pretty symmetrical but the further down you get in the class structure or you know the less 
great you are considered by the culture, the less symmetrical the names become. So Kaladin is playing with this line in between worlds and it makes him feel like an outcast and he doesn't know why he was named that way. It's not who he is, he believes when he is young. Every time a character's name is introduced, we have an insight. We have some connection to the world. And when they are either breaking the norm or from a different place other than the Silver Kingdoms or other than area that practices Warrenism, we know something else about them. Their weirdness makes them unique as well. That's what I love, and that's what makes the Stormlight Archive such a epic and such a story that continually can be explored and revisited. Yeah, the breadth of the world. Should we move on to a different area of the planet, Rashar? Yeah, let's uh, let's actually look at the Pure Lake, which is one of these areas that was originally introduced in a interlude, and it immediately just like captures the mind, captures the attention. As I said, things are weird there because they're not Vorin, and it's one of the first times we get something that is not Vorin. And not only is the Pure Lake not Vorin, but it's quite contained. Like it doesn't yes, have a lot of uh, connection with the outside world, unlike other cultures that we see later, like um, Eerie or something like that, where they are at least in diplomatic conversation with the Alethi. The Pure Lake is really just like this by itself. Yeah. yeah. And so when we get dropped in, Everything is unique. Everything is new. And it's a completely new people and culture and religion. And that's why it's so fascinating, even though the first introduction is, is very short, relatively. But what we get is so interesting to me because we have the characters or the people who live in the Pure Lake are having a conversation with people from the 17th shard and they explain briefly their religion they are followers of a god new relic new relic but they don't use his name they believe that new relic is their true god but that new relic has a jealous and spiteful younger brother named vun makak so in public if they are talking about their god, they will say Vun Makak. When they curse, they will curse in Vun Makak's name because they are trying to fool Vun Makak into thinking that everybody worships him, Vun Makak. And so they like act as if Vun Makak is their god. But then in their holy places, in their private shrines, that's the only time they will use the name New Relic the god that they actually believe in it's so interesting so this is a religion that like the entire thing is oh we don't talk about it's the, whole the fight thing club is like a lie yeah no the whole thing is fight club it's just like oh we don't talk about that religion we talk about voon macaque voon macaque he's great yeah yeah totally cool right voon macaque you the best voon macaque but in reality they're all about that new relic they all all about the new relic and similar here to that early concept of uh trilogism right with the idea of like one god trying to eclipse the other one this is my favorite thing is i'm so curious about are these religions the same religion and 
when we start yeah, talking and about like, are they based on specific shards or something yeah is it all trilogism um kind of reinterpreted by another because the pure lakers believers in new relic slash voon macaque all believe that sunshine is super important and they like give side eye slash curse the uh 17 shard people to be like why are you wearing a shirt bro like get out of here with that shirt covering your skin. You gotta you gotta expose yourself. Suns out, guns out is how the pure Lakers live life. And they would get along well with the Daysiders. Exactly, yeah. but that's the whole point: is it's they like, worship turn the your sun. face to the sun god. Yeah, exactly. They have some similarity there, and we know that on Taldane, the sun is actually the source of autonomy's power it's his stores of investiture yeah and so it is so interesting that trilogism on scadriel has this duality or this split between the thousand-eyed god and the one-eyed god and then on rashar they kind of worship the sun as pure lakers but they still have this duality that like you can't let voon macaque know that actually we love New Relic. And so imagine if we just like change those words a little bit. You can't let honor know that we actually love autonomy. Not that that's what's happening, but if you you take that concept of like we're doing something against yeah, or an awareness in- of the cosmic powers that are there that may have some uh, conflict. One of the things that I love throughout the Stormlight Archive is how quickly things will come up and then just like never be mentioned again. For example, Yasna has a quote where she mentions several religions that we get nothing else about, um, that these are just there around. This also gives us one of our early introductions to Yasna and how she feels and, and believes. So it's great for establishing her character and how she is contrasted by the people around her. Brooke, could you help us out with this one? Yasna says, quote, You will find wise men in any religion, Shalon, and good men in every nation. Those who truly seek wisdom are those who will acknowledge the virtue in their adversaries and who will learn from those who disabuse them of error. All others, heretic, Vorin, Yespirist, or Machian, are equally close-minded. End quote. So she mentions Machian and Yespirist, which we know of no other characters who practice and they're not mentioned by anybody else, but they're just religions that Yasna knows about. Yeah, it just is like one tiny detail that shows you how developed this world is in Brandon Sanderson's mind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who just randomly throws out religions that they don't intend to mention or talk about at any other time. But you know they're like real things in his brain. Oh, for sure. He's like, these people over here in this corner will do this. And that's what like gives these books and these worlds that he is building so much texture and detail, right? It's like the artist going in with a tiny pencil or a tiny paintbrush at the end to just add these like little bits of detail to really bring it to life for the reader. Early on in that first quote from Brandon, he mentioned how Tolkien was the master of creating these worlds. And Tolkien's practice was to build and research his fictional creations as if they were real things, as if 
he was translating a historical work that was found on earth and that he was just doing the research and so that's where he creates the Silmarillion which is like the bible or a bible in middle earth that tells the mythos and the background that many of the characters like Legolas and all the elves and the the Numenorians and the high like all these people they kind of trace their lineage back to this Silmarillion which Tolkien believe, or at least acted, as if he was translating and it was just like found in Earth. It was just like, you know, oh, someone discovered some old scrolls and he was doing the translation. That, as a starting point, is always going to leave a rich texture and a rich history because every little thing that is being said, an author could either imagine that it has an explanation or that it doesn't need an explanation. Like, they could just imagine it as a blank slate, like, I need this character to say this thing. Yeah, and so I'm just going to, like, throw a bunch of words in here, like, yeah, yeah, sure, that's a religion. Or the author can believe every time I say anything, every name that I create, every action that is taken is connected it to... It manifests in yes. the cognitive realm. There it is. <laughs> he, he's creating the cognitive realm, and that is such a powerful aspect of Sanderson's writing. Let's move on to another very isolated section of Rashar, Shinovar, where they worship stones. Sometimes going by the name of the stone shamans or stone shamanism, this is where we get the language that is so unique to Zeth, uh, where they call outsiders or infidels, people who don't believe stone walkers, and there is the practice of the truthless is they are bound to an oath stone and whoever holds their oath stone, they must follow the orders of, which is not great for Zeth, but uh, is, is part of their religious beliefs. And the Shin are basically the opposite of the Alethi. Not only do they live in like a grassy oasis versus the Alethi who live in like a desert and literally can't avoid walking on stone. Um, but in the Shin culture and Shin religion, the biggest sin, the worst thing that you could possibly do is to kill another human versus, again, the Alethi who consider war. waging war to be very honorable and like the thing that you should do. And this is how a person may become truthless. The stone shamans also believe that mining of any metals is a sacrilege, blasphemy. You can't, can't yeah, be done. because you can't dig into the stone. Obviously. Stones are sacred. Um, and that means that the only metal that exists in their society is soul cast metal. Now, to me, thinking about this kind of dual, which one came first, the religion or the practicality, we know that the shin are most connected or at least have a lot of connections to the people that were had a mass exodus from ashen and landed well, on rashar that's a guess we don't know that we know that there are connections between the shin and those who came from ashen that's all i'm saying there's some connections there i don't know what they all are so my question is did they have soul casting first 
And that's why they developed this belief in anti-mining, basically, or anti-tearing up the earth, is because they already had the soul-casting ability technology that'll let them avoid that question. I don't know. It would have to be a totally different kind of soul-casting, though, because the Shin also do not believe in using stormlight out of gems. That's what I'm saying. So how would they power their soul casting? By having some type of precursor technology. We know the people from Ashen came over to Rashar some way. Don't know how. But if it was technological, then maybe they had some technology that could be soul cast and the Shin like used that early in their um, time on Rashar. Basically... What I'm trying to get at is the question between what comes first, the religious belief or the thing that you have to do or can do, um, and then the religious belief grows out of that. It is super interesting, and we will look forward to getting more information about Shinovar just in general. Literally, I will take any information you will give me about Shinovar, Brandon. (laughs) Until then, let's look at one more religion. Maybe my favorite religion in the entire Cosmere. It's a good one. And this will be our last one for today. And then we'll make a volume two with all the other stuff. Because it's not the last religion. We barely even tapped the surface yet. Yeah, we've only been on two planets. Exactly. we got a lot more to talk about. But let's do this last one. Call it an episode. Here we go. This is an unnamed religion we can consider it the god of the Iriali, which includes Yim, the cobbler. The little cobbler. The shoemaker uh, that we get only one little interlude about. But he gives us the most information about this exactly. particular religion. So the god of the Iriali is the whole Iriali people have this being that they worship, god that they worship, called the One. According to their belief, the one knew everything, but wasn't able to experience anything. And so the one became many in order to experience everything. Because all new experiences, any new experience is different and experienced by a person who has their own perspective on that experience, it brings completeness to the one. The more experiences the many have, the more complete the one becomes. So there is a kind of connection in all things that Yim, who's our main narrator of this religion, believes in, and that all things are both one thing and a division into many things at the same time. It reminds me a lot of yogic philosophy, the idea of there being one cosmic energy that then is represented in each person. And the goal of yogic philosophy is to realize that you are, in fact, an aspect of this divine energy. Yeah, let's uh, read Yim's quote. He's talking to the young boy, the kind of like street urchin who he's making shoes for, when he explains when he explains the religion of the one. Long ago, there was only one. One knew everything, but had experienced nothing. And so, one became many. Us. People. The one, who is both male and female, 
did so to experience all things. We are Iriali, and part of the long trail, of which this is the fourth land. Eventually, all will be gathered back in when the seventh land is attained, and we will once again become one. More people did know this once. It's not talked about as much as it should be. End quote. So a bunch of stuff right there. As you explained, the kind of basic concept uh, of the religion, but also this conversation about the long trail and how the Iriali are on Rashar currently, but don't believe that they are from Rashar. And this was followed up by... Yeah, I think, didn't we talk about this a couple episodes ago for the words of Brandon? It's a super interesting concept that I didn't even remember this quote. The questioner says, quote, I've been fixating on this mass exodus. The Iriali are the people of the mass exodus? Question mark. I've always wanted it to be the people of Threnody. And Brandon said that the Iriali are not native to Rashar. There is stuff going on on Threnody too. And those two things share some similarities. So this idea of the long trail, which some people have speculated online is a certain cluster of some of the Cosmere uh, stars and planets that are closer than maybe some of the other planets. And so the belief, and this is real speculation, hardcore speculation at this time, not a lot of in-book confirmation, but the belief is that the Iriali may have come from another planet that we are familiar with, something like Skadriel, something like Taldane, and have jumped at least three times in their past before they arrived on Rashar, and their belief also says that they will jump two more times to the fifth and sixth land uh, before the seventh land is attained, and that is when all things will become one again. I almost wonder if they are from Hoyd's people, you know, the people Dragon who steel. knew Adonalsium. Yeah, because this idea of... And so they know that all there was one, one mm-hmm. yeah, that then became many and then will reunite once again. Yeah, and you could imagine that this might even have been the best religion that kind of explains what is going on in the the greater cosmere it does seem to be relatively simple at least yim seems to be relatively simple practitioner and kind of down to earth so not a lot of complexities but we also don't have a whole bunch of information about the Iriali yeah, I'd be interested to culture. see more of how it presents in Erie, like if there yeah. is more of a structured type of thing around it. Because we just know that Erie is weird. Uh, I mean, that's where the gigantic spren, the like 100 foot tall water ocean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's got a bunch Flashing of faces, faces. And, yeah. and like every day comes out at 736 in the morning. People are just like, oh, let's go check out this gigantic sprint thing. There's weird stuff going on in the Erie. And we all we kind of know is that it's got some weird stuff and it's got this belief in the God of the One. That is a lot of religion. 
And it's not even all the religion. This we is going to become a serious. Yeah, exactly. So we will be back next time for some more religious talks on more of the planets, more great Cosmere conversations. Hit us up on the Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. Let us know what's your favorite religion. How do you think the religions play in? Any of these conversations about culture and history and religion, you know, let us know what you think. Until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. Thank you.